0: Can you put yourself into that mood? I mean, do you find yourself, or does it come on you? Do you find yourself talking with people, but actually, you're writing a song in your head?
1: Yeah, I get in trouble off my wife all the time for doing that. Yeah, but um, they're just frivolous pursuits. That's what I call them. frivolous pursuits.
2: Hello and welcome to Too Much of Not Enough, a Silverchair podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Hedger, and in this episode, we'll be talking about Daniel John's and Paul Mack's 2004 album, The Dissociatives. That's right. I'm doing the dissociatives, the don't call it a side project dissociatives. And I've decided to do it now in chronology rather than after I'd done Young Modern, where I'd have to explain it all again anyway. But before we get into that, some housekeeping. Please keep your emails coming in for the mailbag and FAQ episode. In case you missed it, I'll be doing an episode where I answer any questions you might have about Silverchair, about other music, about the podcast, whatever you like. Just email me with FAQ in the subject line. That email, of course, is silverchairpodcast at gmail.com. You can also always reach me at Instagram at silverchairpodcast and facebook.com slash silverchairpodcast. And as always, if you're enjoying the show, please spread the word. Rating the show five stars and reviewing it in Apple Podcasts really helps, as does following me on social media and engaging with and sharing the content. If you're feeling really generous, you can support the show directly by donating at the PayPal link in the episode description. And before we move on, I just want to again say thank you to everyone who has been listening and been in touch about how much you've been enjoying the show. I really do appreciate it. One last thing before we get to the episode, I promise. I have signed up to the Buzzsprout affiliate program. Buzzsprout.com is my podcast host, which I found really user-friendly. You might remember that I said I'd been working on this podcast idea for more than two years, but among other things, I could never find a user-friendly podcast host who I could basically sign up to and they would do the rest. So finding them was a big thing for me. They make it super easy to get listed on all the podcast directories, Apple, Spotify, Google, etc literally at the click of a button. And that meant I was able to just focus on making the thing. So if you do happen to be looking for a podcast host, I highly recommend Buzzsprout. And if you go to the affiliate link in the episode description and sign up with Buzzsprout using my link, you get a free $20 Amazon gift card. Okay, for real, let's move on. Let's talk about the dissociatives. January 2003, just before Silverchair would start their overdue diorama tour, Daniel Johns proposed to longtime girlfriend Natalie Imbruglia. They spent much of their time together hopping between Australia, where Daniel lived and worked, and the UK, where Natalie lived and worked. By all accounts, Daniel enjoyed being in the UK, living in Natalie's house on White Lily's Island in Windsor. Over there, he was the less famous of the two and enjoyed the anonymity that came with it along with something he hadn't had since, basically before he was in Silverchair, privacy. Natalie, by contrast, was a fellow Aussie who had been a star on the soap opera Neighbours, which default makes you massive in the UK. She had also, concurrently with Silverchair, a very respectable pop music career herself, and while Silverchair had been breaking into the US, Natalie had become a music star in the UK.
3: I love being in England. It's cool. You get squirrels on your windowsill every day, eating nuts and swans and majestic castles. It's cool. It's like you're a prince,
2: but no one knows who you are. No one cares. That kind of vibe. By the end of the truncated Diorama tour in June of 2003, Daniel was back in the UK with Natalie. She had a basement studio set up in her house. And at some point, Daniel called up his old mate, Paul Mack, back home in Australia, And invited him to come to Windsor to write some songs together. Over a two-week period in that English summer, they had written and recorded the bulk of an album.
3: We started work in England after um, the last Silverchair show in the UK and um, wrote and recorded the majority of the tracks in two weeks. I think the album was recorded and written and kind of done, we just needed to do percussion and vocals. And, um,
4: yeah. It was like a song a day. So it's like we only had, I only had two weeks. I was there for a limited time with laptop. It's like, come on, let's go. We've got two weeks. It was like a song a day kind of thing. And it's like pretty much full arrangements as they stand today kind of thing.
2: Now, obviously Paul and Daniel were not strangers to each other when it came to working together on music. Aside from Paul's contributions to Silverchair's albums, especially Diorama, there had been the 2000 EP I Can't Believe It's Not Rock, the first release on John Watson's new Eleven record label. I'll get to that in a minute. Paul Mack by now was even more successful in his own right, winning an ARIA for his 2001 album 3,000 Feet High, featuring the hit singles Just The Thing and The Sound of Breaking Up. It was much more of a straight dance pop album than his work with Silverchair would have suggested, but it was Paul returning to his roots somewhat.
5: Oh, oh, just
2: feel Sidebar, I can't believe it's not rock. Considering it's the same two guys, it's understandable that people would think it's of a piece with the Dissociatives. But comparing I Can't Believe It's Not Rock to what became the Dissociatives, I have to say that they're in completely different genres, and they are actually quite different musical projects. So I will briefly touch on I Can't Believe It's Not Rock here, but I don't think it's a musical antecedent to the Dissociatives. In addition, it is just an EP, and aside from the Tomorrow EP, my plan has really just been to cover the albums. That said, I'll give my thoughts on it here. To me, the difference between I Can't Believe It's Not Rock and The Dissociatives is that the former is more experimental and less fully formed, and that's by design. It's almost like demos for something else, but importantly, not demos for The Dissociatives. It is also much more of a rock-based project, hence the name. By contrast to I Can't Believe It's Not Rock, the Dissociatives is straight pop or pop rock, really. All that said, it has some interesting stuff on it. So, I Can't Believe It's Not Rock, released December 1st in the year 2000, it has five songs on it with a total runtime of 23 minutes, which is long for an EP. The whole thing was recorded at Paul and Daniel's home studios in the Blue Mountains and Newcastle, respectively.
4: You didn't really go out very much at that point as well. I was like, you know, well, Fuck it, dude! I'm coming to get you. So, like, I, you know, drove to Newcastle and, you know, got him and took him to my place and and, you know, cooked and we ate and it was all in the middle of that period. You know, and music is the fucking healer. It is, you know, it's got me out of many a dark time and it's nice to be able to share that with somebody else.
2: Forward thinking of them at the time, the EP was originally available to stream for free on their now defunct website, ICan'tBelieveItSNotRock.com, which now redirects to the Dissociative's website, which is actually still active, funnily enough. You could also download the EP for a small charge. CDs were only available via mail order, and only a short run of them was ever made. Referencing the distribution model for the EP, Daniel is quoted as saying, I had a lot of fun making this music with Paul, and I'm really proud of how it sounds, but it's obviously not going to appeal to everybody. We were both concerned that if we released this CD in the usual way, some people would have the wrong set of expectations. It's a different sort of project, so it makes sense to release it in a different sort of way." amazingly there is a page on the dissociative still active though in hibernation website about the ep which reads like it's a repurposed press release however it does have some interesting info in it so i will refer to that for a lot of the background for i can't believe it's not rock i can't believe it's not rock was recorded over three sessions the first at paul's studio where they recorded the track rain at this point it wasn't even meant to become anything more than just a one-off song The second session was months later at Daniel's home studio, once Paul had helped him install and set up his eight-track recorder, where they recorded Home and Staging a Traffic Jam. By now, they both realised how much they enjoyed working together and decided to keep creating and going for a more formal project. Their third session yielded the songs Three and Take Her Out. Now they needed a name for this weird detour. Some names kicked around included The Agoraphobic Laptops and Scrum, before finally settling on I Can't Believe It's Not Rock. It's interesting to think about how much the music industry has changed in the 20 years since this EP was released. See how self-conscious artists used to be about stepping outside their genres? Can you imagine a band caring about adding some electronics to their songs these days and calling their albums something like guitars and computers? I guess maybe Radiohead was breaking that mould this same year with Kid A, But music was so much more siloed back then, at least it was in the minds of the rock people who wouldn't dare listen to anything with a hint of fake instruments about it. The song recorded was Rain. Apparently Daniel had already been working on this song before he teamed up with Paul, who added his own musical take to it when they recorded at Paul's studio. From what I can tell, the initial idea for this project was that Daniel would do the guitars and Paul would act as the rhythm, whether that be beats, samples or electronic pulses. In contrast to the dissociatives, Paul is more squarely in the electronic dance zone here, and actual piano or keyboards are few and far between. The closest thing to the dissociatives on this EP is the sound of the guitar and the electronic undercurrent during certain parts of rain, particularly the it's been raining fire far too long part and the far from the ground stars coming down part. Not melodically really, but the actual sonics of the song. Rain is a strong song, though very understated, compared to what Daniel's most recent work was at the time, Neon Ballroom. I should also note that this comes before Paul Mack's big breakthrough album as well. This was Daniel working with a more underground artist. Based around what sounds like a live drum sample and then Paul's electronic bleepy bloops, Take Her Out features what sounds like Daniel extemporising ideas for the song before exploding into a hard rock chorus. The words at the start are Daniel basically talking, saying he wants someone to leave. I don't want her here. Which is presumably where the title comes from. Take Her Out, Out of My Sight. Take Her Out might be the most experimental track on the EP. It's also probably the most rock song on the EP. And it has lyrics to match. The rats on my finger laughed at my nose. More impenetrable Daniel lyrics. Three is a very pretty acoustic guitar and keyboard instrumental. It does feel fairly unformed and reminds me for some reason of the sort of thing that Pink Floyd did in their wilderness years between their first album after Sid Barrett left and their breakthrough album, Dark Side of the Moon. Younger listeners might not know this, but there are six albums between Pink Floyd's debut, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, and Dark Side of the Moon, where they just experimented and worked out what the band was going to be. This might be a long bow to draw, but in a way, I can't believe it's not rock, is like a compressed version of this experimental period, setting us up for a much more focused album in the dissociatives. This is like a condensed version of that, just in terms of creativity, not necessarily in quality. Probably the strongest song on the EP, staging a traffic jam sets a mood and follows it to its logical conclusion. Recorded over a couple of days at Daniel's home studio, the song features Daniel playing around with his falsetto in the melody, which he would employ more on diorama, and then again even more on the dissociatives. The vocal melody here is strong enough to withstand the electronic swamp that Paul has built underneath. It's also the first, maybe only time that Daniel flirted with a hip-hop vocal inflection when it comes to the backing vocals at the, at the start there was innocence parts. Or it would be, but I believe that's actually Paul doing those bits. You be the judge. Paul actually plays the piano during this song too, which gives the song a nice sense of movement. There are multiple sections to this song as well, which is interesting because at this point, Silverchair hadn't really done much of that outside of emotion sickness. That said, I don't know if the song completely sustains itself through its six and a half minute runtime. even if I do really like how the chorus repeats and repeats at the end with a nice organ harmony underneath it at the end, and then Daniel changes the harmony too in that last minute of the song. This song, along with Daniel and Paul, appeared in the ABC TV drama Love is a Four Letter Word. Daniel even has a couple of lines, where the band played in a bar owned by one of the characters. This short lived show actually featured a lot of bands this way, including Pre Shrunk, Machine Gun Fellatio, and Sunk Lodo. Gig's cancelled.
1: I got a court summons. I got noise complaints coming out of my bum. Ah, uh, you so can't cancel, Gussie. Yeah, give me one good reason. Uh, there's, there's two men and. They're right behind you there.
3: Hi, Angus. How are you man? Oh, oh, Daniel.
1: Paul. I'm glad you could make it. <laughs>
2: was supposedly recorded live in one take. I think you can kind of tell this evolved out of a jam because of how the song builds, and also because it's almost seven minutes long. Home attempts to build up a mood out of a Paul Mac beat, and then introduces a nice little swampy guitar figure. Daniel's vocals on this song are drenched in effects, like they're just another texture in the song, rather than something that's meant to stand out. Unfortunately, for my taste at least, the melody is more monotonous than hypnotizing. There's subtle and then there's boring. It almost sounds like a remix of a more focused song, and we just never heard the other version. The You're Coming Down, You're Coming Round Again, Facing Your Eyes, I'll Find My Way Home chorus is quite strong melodically, and it shows the direction the song might have gone in. <laughs> There's definitely something here, but I don't know if many people were willing to sit through the almost seven minute runtime to find out. Overall, the songwriting on I Can't Believe It's Not Rock is probably not the height of what Daniel can do, nor Paul Mack for that matter, but I am glad it exists because it meant that they both got that out of their systems and we didn't get a Silverchair or Dissociatives album that just sounded like what I Can't Believe It's Not Rock sounds like.
1: We have tonight
0: live... I can't believe it's not rock.
3: Thanks a lot. I've always liked jazz and we really hope you guys like it as well. Say that I can't believe it's not rock and that associatives are the same band is not really accurate. So like I can't believe it's not rock was a bunch of spur of the moment jams, you know, chopped at the six minute mark. Um, and then, you know, just experimenting and having fun with chords, but we weren't really we weren't a band at that stage. We hadn't we weren't really I didn't consider it really writing songs together. It just felt like we were kinda just getting in tune with what each other's doing musically. And then for the, for the Dissociatives it was more like there was a really clear vision. We knew that it, you know, we just wanted to make um, beautiful, uplifting music that made people feel good and made people smile and um, we had, we just had a clearer vision and it was, the Dissociatives was always going to be a priority. It wasn't going to be like, I can't believe it's not rock where You know, we just did it and then left it to
2: die. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was such a 48-hour flower, that one. Yeah, it was. Okay, back to The Dissociatives. The idea behind the songs that would become The Dissociatives' project was to create a new band with a new set of rules. Despite Daniel having full creative control of Silverchair by now, he still felt that there were things he couldn't do within the confines of that band. Plus, he wanted to work on a more equal basis with his good friend Paul Mack, who he seemed to be on a more similar wavelength when it came to music anyway. Coming off Diorama, which was limitless and indulgent in terms of what Daniel could do in his songwriting, for this new project, Daniel and Paul restricted themselves to eight instruments per song, and that was probably really refreshing. This was as lo-fi as Daniel had ever worked to this point. The
4: fun thing about recording it was that we had like, hardly any instruments we had like a piano you know an acoustic guitar an electric guitar a bass guitar a Mellotron, which was pretty cool Yeah. and um, you know that was kind of it that was like the range of sounds that we were writing with so um, we were trying to change you know every song which is like okay this is the palette what are you going to do with it so hence every song's different but for me it also meant I got to just play the piano which I hardly ever get to do in electronic music land or you know Um, most, but it's something that I really dig doing because I love playing the piano. It's a beautiful instrument and it's not very often that you get the chance to do it. And I did it all through this album.
2: Oh, and that is something I really should emphasize. You have to remember that in between I Can't Believe It's Not Rock and The Dissociatives is a little album called Diorama. So a lot happened both musically and personally with Daniel and presumably Paul during the three or so years in between. Anyway, Jeff Apter quotes Daniel as saying, we just wanted to get ourselves in a dark, confined space with all our own gear. Every single track we had to make sound different and interesting using these eight instruments. We were adamant that the best creativity comes from restriction, where the possibilities aren't endless. After recording the basic tracks for the album in the UK, they moved back to Meriwether to Daniel's home studio for vocals. The songs are credited to Paul and Daniel, though all lyrics and melodies are Daniel's. That's an interesting tidbit I got from The Dissociative's website bio, which I appreciate. I think I've mentioned before how weird it is that melodies often don't get credited specifically. It's nice to see them specifically credited here. Kim Moynes and Julian Hamilton, later better known as The Presets, were drummer and keyboardist respectively on the album, and later joined as the live band for The Dissociative's along with James Hazelwood on bass. Daniel played bass on the actual album. Recorded vocals at my
3: house.
4: I mixed it. Just took my studio up to Dan's place and did all the vocals and mixed it in like another three weeks. So it was about like, what, six
2: weeks all up kind of thing, yeah. recording time, which is the fastest thing I've ever done. Everything happened really quickly. In December 2003, a press release appeared, Meet the Dissociatives. At the end of the month, on New Year's Eve 2003, Daniel and Natalie got married in a secluded ceremony that, by necessity, was still a little over the top to escape paparazzi. Apparently the invitation came with a ticket to Cairns and then a bus to a secret beach near Port Douglas where guests would stay in an exclusive hotel lodge. The VIP guests included Richard Branson, Kyla Minogue and David Helfgott. And that is the most gossipy this podcast will ever get. I hate speculating on strangers' personal lives so I hope you enjoyed it.
0: Now you, Sonny Jim, I, last time I saw you, you were a single man. How is married life going? It's good. It's like being single, but you've got a wife. <laughs> <laughs> no, I heard mean, you might be moving to London. You and Natalie are going to move to London. Is this true? I mean, she. I know yeah, she's no, been we, li- we live in anyway.
3: in Windsor, and it's it's really nice, and we love it there. But I also spend a lot of time here because all my friends are here, and this is where I work. So excellent. I like
2: Windsor, and I like Australia. The Associative's first single, "Somewhere Down the Barrel," was released February four two thousand and four. I don't have a specific memory of hearing the song, though it almost certainly was through seeing the video clip on Channel V, which, like the cover art, featured the design and photo montage style animation of James Hackett. Although I wasn't a huge fan of the aesthetic that came with the band, I immediately loved the song, and when the album came out in April, I scooped it right up. What can I say, I'm a sucker for a well-written pop song. So let's talk about the album. What does the music sound like?
3: The music is... To me, a combination of excitement, happiness, rambunctiousness, and vivaciousness,
4: done to whimsy. I'd add with
2: a hint of melancholy.
3: Yeah, no, there's some melancholy, definitely. But it's more
2: outweighed by joy. The Dissociatives is pop music, but the kind of pop music they don't really make anymore and back then wasn't really in vogue either. Pop music with real instruments, even though at the time everyone thought this was a really electronic project. It's funny to think about that now. This is so much more organic sounding than almost any pop music today. At the time, the Dissociatives were sometimes described as Happy Radiohead, but I think that does it a disservice. Paul Mack, after all, had been in the electronic scene long before Radiohead started noodling around with synthesizers. I mean, Radiohead didn't go full electronic until Kid A in the year 2000. Paul Mack had been winning awards for his electronic work as far back as 1995. Again, it's the same lack of context and preconceived ideas that overseas reviewers in particular brought to Daniel's Music with Silverchair. Also, even though it's got quite a lot of electronic sounds, The Dissociatives is totally an analogue-sounding album. The electronics do not seem cutting-edge. The aesthetic is more of tape machines and acoustic instruments. The keyboard sounds, plus a mellotron are not pushing the boundaries. They are drawing on that warm 60s and 70s sound, if anything. All the songs on the album are in standard guitar tuning, which is probably a function of both the collaborative nature of the songwriting and the speed of the songwriting. These songs were written quickly, and faffing about with alternate guitar tunings wasn't conducive to the way Paul and Daniel were working together, especially since when working directly with Paul, a pianist, trying to work out how to transpose things between instruments would have gotten very annoying. This album is also the introduction of Daniel's Fender Telecaster, which would play a large role on Silverchair's next album, Young Modern. In fact, I think Daniel enjoyed playing the tally so much on this album that he had it in the back of his mind to use it more with Silverchair. And, of course, we all know that at least one Young Modern song started off as a dissociative song. It's obvious that Daniel and Paul loved working together for this album. At the time, Daniel said in an interview with The Sun-Herald that he loved the process of making it, saying, quote, "...I haven't really done the collaborative thing since the second Silverchair album, and I was a teenager, and I was angry. This was just 100% creativity. We could just be as crazy and mental as we wanted, and there were no rules." In that same interview, Daniel mentioned that they had a no distortion rule in the studio, saying, I didn't want to have to yell over guitars anymore, I'd rather just whisper into a mic and have more of an interpretation of the emotional experience, rather than just singing it out and hoping it might be heard. There are so many melodies on Diorama that are so diverse in their emotional scope, but they all delivered in the same way, so it sounds flatline. On this record, the emotional scope seems to be even greater, mainly on the joyous side, with a little bit of heartbreak. Quote. The songs on the album mostly seem to be done to a click track, or some kind of metronome. Coming from a dance background, Paul would have been very comfortable with this, but it might have been a challenge for Daniel, who had mostly worked within the confines of a band that could speed up and slow down and be more of a natural organism but I think this is one of the challenges that Daniel thrived on during this time, just like restricting the songs to only eight instruments. So, like I said, the musical premise of the album was that they would restrict themselves to eight instruments, and in fact, in the CD booklet, each song has a list of who played what, and yeah, pretty much there are only eight instruments per song, especially if you count various types of keyboards as one instrument. This gives the songs a cohesion and consistency that, as brilliant as it is, even Diorama didn't have. And with all that said, the album has a lot of diversity within that cohesion. The songs all have a consistency, but they're also quite different from each other. That's quite a feat. It's a very accomplished and focused album for a band that didn't really exist 12 months either side of the album coming out. Okay, let's get to the actual songs.
5: Sex sound like lasers A man who wear abrasive hats.
3: With apples just like jewelry. Much preferred customers is the opening track of the record. Um, I think it's probably musically the darkest moment of the record um,
4: yet has Sunshine
3: available oh, it's, oh, it, it's it's got an abundance of Sunshine but I mean just in contrast to the other songs which also have Sunshine but without the shadier side you know what I'm saying yeah so it's like much preferred customers it was always it was always going to be the introduction to the record even when you know before it had lyrics or anything we're sitting there doing the track and I was just hearing it as the first track and I think Paul was hearing it as the
4: first track as well Um, yeah. It just, I
2: think it sets a mood to, okay, we're off to another world. We're much preferred customers is the one true electronic song on the Dissociatives album. Despite it not sounding much like the rest of the album, it's a great opener. It's an invitation to a new experience, something different to anything you'd heard from either of these artists before. Starting out with an electronic pulse and some breathy soundscapes, it welcomes you into a new world. The main piano riff is a simple four note sequence, and when Daniel's vocals enter, the vocal melody is very close to that main piano figure, sometimes singing those notes and sometimes not. You don't necessarily notice though. The melody also features a tritone, by the way. Stay in the class with wind. Only around the four-minute mark that you prominently hear the first natural instrument, Daniel Strum's an acoustic guitar, an open E chord. I believe there's guitar in the chorus as well, but it's not as noticeable. I think that's one reason that this is such a great opening song. It starts out purely electronic, and then acoustic instruments gradually get added. First, the vocals, but at the start, Daniel's voice has some processing on it. Then, his voice gets clearer and more recognizable at the chorus, and then we get that striking acoustic guitar. This sounds like a song where Daniel really enjoyed playing with his voice and not having to sound like the guy from Silverchair. He does sound more like himself on the rest of the album, but here he really allows himself to be understated with his singing. Also pay attention to the backing vocals, especially in the verses, where at turns he sounds like a horror movie character, or a black metal singer, or a robot. These harmonies here are very close to, if not actually dissonant as well. I also love that in the opening line, Welcome to Planet Pod, the word pod, or at least the word that in the CD booklet tells you is the word pod, is processed and reversed, making it unrecognizable as a human language.
5: Welcome to-
2: The song achieves a lot by being simple and repetitive, because that means when there is a change, like that small chord shift to E flat halfway through the verse, it feels bigger than a chord change usually does because we've just been sitting on that one repeated piano riff for the whole song. This is probably something Paul brought to the table with his knowledge and experience in dance music. Where repetition is the whole point until a small or sudden change is like, you know, some kind of musical eruption. Also, I think this song is the closest I'll ever come to understanding the appeal of dance music. I understand intellectually that repetition works, repetition works, repetition works to make small changes feel bigger, but this is where I can actually feel it happen. bridge where Daniel actually sings the line, much preferred customers, the actual melody for that phrase is a chromatic three-step and then a whole tone, much customers, which happens a lot in this song in particular. There are a lot of chromatic descending melody lines, meaning essentially that you're playing every note instead of every note in the scale. The difference between playing this and this, if that makes sense. The chorus to this song is catchy but simple. However, it does have more movement in the melody than we've heard before, so it sounds like the song has finally opened up, and then it's back to that contained verse again. Containment and release. It's all subtle stuff, but I think it's really effective. This opening track also introduces us to what is listed in the liner notes as the Surreal for the Kids choir, who appear on quite a few tracks on the album. I can't find much information about who this group of kids actually were though. If you were in the Surreal for the Kids choir, let me know. As a bit of a side note, I remember hearing Nine Inch Nails' 2005 album, With Teeth, and thought that the opening track to that, All The Love In The World, was very similar to much preferred customers, especially the way it sits on a descending chromatic piano riff and an electronic beat, and then opening up later with these big chords for the chorus. Now, I'm not saying that Trent Reznor heard the dissociatives, I doubt that's even likely, but by the same token, nobody was accusing Nine Inch Nails of being Radiohead ripoffs. Context. In the lyrics to Where Much Preferred Customers, Daniel allows himself to be totally abstract. It makes me think of how John Lennon, one of Daniel's favourite songwriters, when he was writing I Am the Walrus, was specifically writing things that made no sense because he wanted to confound the music critics who would read into his work some deeper meaning. I get that sense from Where Much Preferred Customers even if that's not actually true. But listen, how psychedelic are these lyrics? Welcome to Planet Pod, where insects sound like lasers, and men who wear abrasive hats with eyeballs judge like juries, and skin that flakes like ancient paint suffocate contentment, birds creep over tin roofs like criminals with tap shoes. Daniel was finally able to do what he'd been hinting at in the lyrics on Diorama, total strangeness. The instruments listed for this song are vocals, guitar, keys, mellotron, drum machine, vibraphone, percussion, random sounds, and the Surreal for the Kids choir.
4: Hard to pick singles because it's like every song's so different. It's like if you put whatever song you choose, people, you know, are going to go, oh, the album sounds like that," but it kind of doesn't. So it was, um, it was a bit of a random choice of like, "Well, what, what's the first sound that you give to anybody?" And I think somewhere down the barrel, probably there's a nice medium point in the, on the whole sort of range of songs that kind of got the vibe of what we were trying to do. I think it's pretty
3: cool, was the song. Yeah, it's nice. It's got a optimistic melody and a great rhythm track to boot. That's what I like about it.
2: Somewhere Down the Barrel was the first single, and therefore the first thing anyone had heard from this new thing called The Dissociatives. As Paul says in that clip, it was hard to pick which song best represents a diverse-sounding album. As an introduction to the band and the album, I think it was the perfect choice. Somewhere Down the Barrel is the first time Daniel had used falsetto for an extended period in a song. Here, it's basically the whole chorus. After experimenting with it on Neon Ballroom and then developing it further on Diorama, this is a singing style that he embraced a lot more on the Dissociatives album, and then one he brings back to Silverchair for Young Modern as well. I love the chord progression in the verses to this song. Daniel's melody sits right on top and every chord change has meaning. When it goes to that B major chord for When You Were A Kid, that minor third shift from G sharp to B brings you into the chorus so well that you don't even need a bridge. That one chord change acts as the bridge. In fact, the guitar doesn't really come in until that chord, so the verses are backed mostly just by an electric piano and a drum loop. When the B chord hits, so does the guitar and the live drums. The first line of the verse melody, Somewhere From The Mortar, is essentially the same melody to the first line of the chorus, Somewhere Down The Barrel. Okay, they're not exactly the same, but they are a variation of each other. Also in the verses, that melody is over a C to A minor progression. And in the chorus, it's over an E flat to G progression. Still a neat little trick. Also, listen out for Paul's constantly ascending keyboard part during the chorus. It's really effective. (laughs) The middle eight of this song has Paul doing a little electronic breakdown into a pure pop na-na-na section, which is as joyful as anything Daniel has ever done, despite the somewhat dark lyrical implications. I also love the little fake-out ending at around the four-minute mark before it launches back in with that bass slide. Awesome. Lyrically, this song sees Daniel use a couple of metaphors. The barrel of a gun with a bullet that he can't keep or hold on to. But also that of a ship. In these waters I'm waiting slash waiting. But also there are barrels on ships as well which is a neat little piece of connective tissue. What does it mean? Well, who knows, but I've always taken the line laugh at jokes you once made when you were a kid to be about his early days with Silverchair for whatever reason. The line about being plagued by small town fascists also seems to fit with the media attention in the relatively small city of Newcastle at the time. The line about a terrorist's a prisoner and tourists are thieves seems like it might be a political thing, but of course this was 2004 and lots of songs were vaguely mentioning terrorism. It was a weird time.
5: So on New you, York
2: And of course, The Dissociatives continues Daniel's lyrical tradition of playing on words. So here we have In These Waters I'm Waiting slash Waiting for a Reason. Daniel also does a really cool rhyming thing in the final chorus, which is a delayed rhyme. The third line of the first chorus rhymes with the third line of the first chorus. So the first time we get, not a slave to a desperate lust, and then later in the song we get, not a slave to an unborn trust. That's really clever and sophisticated structural writing. Another lyrical change in the final chorus is the line, I'm searching for something more than distance, which is a change from the other choruses where the words are, in these waters I'm waiting. And was this the first song in Daniel's career to feature a fade-out ending? Maybe. The instruments listed for this song are vocals, guitars, bass, piano, mellotron, bleeps, keyboards, programming, drums, percussion, drum edits, choir. Horror
3: Horror eyeballs. Eyeballs that was the delay that's on the vocal in the first verse Horror with Eyeballs I like it. yeah it's like um, that that track is probably the one that to me simulates a sculpture or something three dimensional like just because of the sounds and the way it's mixed feels like some music you actually feel like you're within it and you know, even though there's two speakers in front of you, if it's mixed really amazingly, which I think Horror, horror with Eyeballs is, it makes you feel like you're within the track, feels like the music is all around you and above you and below you. And I think that track is the most surrounding track, you know, that I've heard for a long time.
5: All of this time on my hands so far has gone, defeating my animal.
2: One of the most fun, bizarre songs Daniel ever did, or Paul for that matter, Horror with Eyeballs is perfectly named. It's possibly the closest that Associatives come to sounding like a novelty band, like this is their version of the Monster Mash or something. I don't know if that was more of a Paul or Daniel creation, but man, do I love this song. The verses create an eerie effect with the chord progression of minor and suspended chords. And then this contrasts with the chorus's chords, which are all major chords. The song is also in 3-4 or 6-8, which gives it that loopy kind of waltz feel. Oh, and the song opens up with the chorus, just like Daniel had started doing on Diorama. Neat. ¶¶ In the chorus melody, the word gone is an accidental note, not in key, like we talked about Daniel doing a lot on Diorama. You can probably hear it. Another thing that's great is that each time we hear the chorus, it adds something new. So the first time is the opening, which Daniel sings down the octave. In the second chorus, he sings it both down the octave, and with an octave harmony on top.
5: This my hands, so far
2: then Paul Mack brings in some keyboard arpeggios as the chorus progresses. I
5: love this my hands, so far has gone
2: then, my favourite thing in the song happens in the third chorus, where Daniel sings it at full voice this time. I- So instead of going back to the verse after the na-na-na's, the chorus transforms with Daniel now singing All of the Time I Was Dead.
5: the dead,
2: The harmony in this section is amazing as well, with Daniel adding to that octave harmony with yet another high voice on top. I don't know how many vocal tracks there are here but it sounds like a lot it's gorgeous and really effective as yet another change in the song and those na 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 parts act as little circuit breakers for the ends of the choruses again it's something that acts as a bridge from verses to choruses and back again and those parts are also played on a chord that doesn't appear in the rest of the song a c-sharp major <archive creating enthusiasm> So as I said, this song is the closest thing to a novelty song they've done, and that's partly because of the lyrics. But even though what he's saying in the song might sound like nonsense, Daniel's voice sounds pained and serious, especially at the all of the time I was dead part, which makes me think this song is actually about something quite serious. So let's read into things too much. Lyrically, I can't be sure, but this song sounds like it's about boredom being bad for your mental health. All of this time on my hands so far has gone to feeding my animals. Maybe feeding my demons. Or instead of saying to feeding my animals, is he saying defeating my animals, defeating his demons. Another little Daniel play on words. I feel root vegetable. Am I dead or buried alive? Could that mean being so depressed you can't get out of bed? Being a vegetable? If think about where he was in his life at the time he was writing these songs, this take makes sense. He was living in a country where he didn't really know anyone except his fiancé who lived on a literal island. He was likely enjoying the anonymity but also craving inspiration. So he calls old mate Paul Mack to collaborate. These lyrics are what came out in a quick-fire period of creativity. All of the time I was dead, limbless in bed. To me, this sounds like a reference to Metallica's One or the film Johnny Got His Gun, but that's just me. I doubt it was. Also, that reference to feeding animals gives me Tuner in the brine vibes, even if this song doesn't sound anything like it. Paul is actually listed in the liner notes as singing those operatic na na's. So the instruments listed are vocals, guitars, bass, clippity-clomp piano, brackets, Daniel, melodic piano, brackets, Paul, Melotron, Keyboards, Programming, Drums, Angus Stewart, Drums and Orchestral Percussion, Kim Moynes, and Pedal Steel, John Stewart. Now, I'm not sure what it is looking at the list of instruments, but in the outro to the song, there's something that sounds like a theremin, possibly Paul's keyboard or the pedal steel guitar approximating the sound of a theremin. The theremin, of course, was a staple instrument of B-horror movie soundtracks, which this song is obviously referencing.
3: Lifting the veil from the braille was actually... We were having a dull day in England when we were writing the record and I'm like, I've got this song, but I don't know, it's like... I I know how to make it cool, but you're going to think it's really corny because you're not going to, you know, you don't have the sense of irony e that I have. <laughs> and um, So I'd sat down and played in this song and kind of sung a melody with no lyrics. Then he's like, yeah, yeah I really like it, but you know, if we're gonna do it, can you at least whistle that main melody? And I was like, okay, Uncle Paul, I'll do that. So I plugged in my guitar and started recording and then whistled the melody and discovered that I could whistle and tune. So that was cool.
2: a beautiful whistled melody atop a Paul Mac soundscape, lifting the veil from the braille is the audio equivalent of a sunny day. Daniel tells a story about being in New York with Silverchair and having this melody appear in his head and needing to record it before he forgot it. So he dragooned Chris Joannou from Silverchair and Melissa Chennery from John Watson Management to find a dictaphone for him to record the song. You kids that have grown up with iPhones and devices that have always been able to record whenever the moment strikes, do not know how lucky you are. Only the second instrumental of Daniel's career after Madman, or third if we're counting three from I Can't Believe It's Not Rock, lifting the veil from the braille is still able to draw you in with its multiple parts and dynamic shifts. It is still a complete song rather than a leftover song idea. In a way, it's actually not correct to call it an instrumental. With whistles, oohs and ahs and na-na-na's, Daniel is still creating a vocal melody, one that is complete and resonant. This song also gives us maybe our best up-close appearance of the Mellotron, which is one of the featured instruments on the album. At the three-minute mark in Lifting the Veil from the Braille, Paul gets a beautiful little Mellotron breakdown before the live guitars and drums come back, with that building diatonic riff that's going up and down the scale. I should also just mention what a Mellotron is for listeners who might not know. It was kind of a precursor to the keyboard synthesizer, but completely analog. Every note on the keyboard was attached to a small tape loop, like a physical cassette tape, so that when you pressed a note, the tape loop would play at that pitch. There were, I think, three or four different tape loops per Mellotron, so you could switch between which sounds you wanted. Probably the most famous Mellotron on record is the start of the Beatles Strawberry Fields Forever which I will not play because I don't want to tempt copyright that much.
4: Hello there. I suppose you thought you were listening to a long playing
3: record just then. Well, you weren't. You are listening to a new instrument that David
4: Nixon and I have helped develop in this country. It makes the actual sounds of the orchestra.
2: Now, I usually don't cover reviews until later, but Pop Matters had a glowing review of this album, and in particular, this song. They said... Perhaps the most impressive thing about the Dissociatives is what they can do without the crutch of lyrics, particularly on the sugary enough-to-be-beautiful sunny-day anthem that is lifting the veil from the braille. Nonsensical title aside, it's the most beautiful thing to be heard on the Dissociatives, as John's whistling, handclaps, and unexpected guitar solo all somehow combine to form a seamless trip into a world of puffy clouds and fluffy bunnies. Seriously, if everyone in the world could listen to this song, we'd have world peace. I agree with most of that, except I don't think the title is nonsensical at all. The title seems to be obviously about clarity, seeing something clearly. There is nothing between you and the words in braille. If you had a veil, a piece of fabric, over braille, you wouldn't be understanding things properly. And the song itself feels like that. You are seeing clearly or understanding clearly. There's no veil on the braille. The instruments listed for this song are guitars, bass, siffler, which means whistling, drum machine, piano, mellotron, keyboards, drums, and vibraphone.
3: I think I just felt free to be completely pop on that vocal because it was just so like, what, what are you trying to hide? If you're not going to do a bit of a Justin Timberlake, like, there and there, what are you trying to hide? It's obviously, like, there for the taking kind of thing.
4: (laughs) Yeah, but it's, like, I also reckon, like, it's pop, but it's, like, it's also, like, probably one of the most uh, real and emotional lyrics that I've heard as well. Oh, totally. But it's, like, done to pop.
3: That's what I mean, it's, like it's so pure like its intention is so pure and everything is coming from the right place and it's like it's not pretentious at all it's just a pop song Um, and the lyric is so real like I could afford to do a little Justin Timberlake you know like because I knew that it wasn't going to cheapen the song it was like that's the song to do it on and it probably won't come up again where I get to do a Justin Timberlake type thing on a track So, you know, grabbed it.
2: Forever and a Day is an honest-to-goodness love song for Natalie Imbruglia. A beautiful piano ballad with a great Paul Mac chord progression underpinning a heartfelt vocal from Daniel, Forever and a Day is the first true love song Daniel had ever released. It's interesting to hear Daniel say in that clip that he was doing a bit of a Justin Timberlake pop vocal performance, because it's still quite understated. That said, JT is a pop artist that also uses a lot of falsetto, especially back then which Daniel obviously also does and started doing more on this album. I love the movement in this song, how the melody in the verses has its own story to tell, like how each line has its own descending sequence of notes. Sunshine on rain clouds.
5: Words will-
2: And again, there's no bridge between the verse and the chorus, just a perfectly placed chord progression to lead into the chorus. The middle eight in this song is quite abstract. It goes to a key change, and then the vocal melody becomes strange rather than the smooth, alluring voice we've previously heard. Daniel's barely sounding like himself anymore. By the time he gets to If I Don't See You, the notes have become dissonant and musically reflecting perhaps what it feels like to be without the person you love. The notes are out of key and you don't fit in. Don't
5: see don't see
2: in this song as well, the use of the children's choir is actually really effective. Something that could have sounded indulgent and over the top is actually really nice. Somehow they made the song sound understated rather than overblown. I actually love that whole coda section that starts when the choir enters to sing the chorus and Daniel ad-libs all these different vocal things, including one repetition of So Cold Without You that sounds like he's underwater. It's also interesting to hear Daniel say that the lyric is straight and obvious, because it's really only the main chorus lyric, Forever in a Day, So Cold Without You, that is straight ahead, heart on the sleeve direct. The lines in the verses are still pretty standard opaque Daniel lyrics, such as Words won't say the clouds that I can hear, a thousand sunshines on rain clouds. But I guess lines like, But I don't see nothing if I don't see you, and The truth is I'd believe and be forever in a day, So Cold Without You, state it fairly clearly even if the meter of the melody and the way those lines are broken up in the song makes the lyrics seem more fragmented when you're just listening to it. And of course, as we know, these songs were written really quickly, so the lyrics are probably more first draft than Daniel was used to writing, And so to him, they probably feel more direct because they might very well have just been what came out of the pen that day. A gorgeous song anyway. The instruments listed are vocals, guitar, piano, mellotron, programming, drums by Angus Stewart, pedal steel by John Stewart, and the choir.
4: Um, we've, we've been I was sort of saying we were trying to um, you know, not repeat ourselves on any of the songs. So we tried different stuff like start with one of my chord progressions or start with one of Dan's or Dan would start on the piano and then I'd take over on the piano and we just kept swapping things around. And I think Dan came up with that chord progression. Um, but it was like, in a, maybe in one of the styles that we'd already done, it was like, all right, what can we do with this? And then we just tried the sort of... Um, neurotic straight apes approach that dun, 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 just because it was like come on let's 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 go up an energy notch and um, and it was just so much fun hearing that chord progression done to this different style that it was just it was just quite invigorating yeah.
2: What I've always liked about thinking in reverse is that the song kind of leans into the fact that it's done to a click track. The rhythm track itself has actually always sounded to me more like an actual metronome, like a physical metronome, rather than a click track. Do people even know what those sound like anymore? They have a much more actual, distinct acoustic sound than the click that people would use now. And that's a great energy to have in a song. The guitars are all fast downstroking, there's a metronome loud in the mix, and the live drums themselves have a compressed artificial sounding quality to them. Anyway, I feel like all this gives the song a great erratic tension, plus Daniel's vocal performance is very clipped and neurotic, where the lack of emotion in his voice actually makes the performance sound super off-putting and cool. The intro and verse riff indeed is pretty much a straight up punk rock progression. It's basically a one flat three seven before then going to the flat six and then the three. And the vocal melody mainly sits on those underlying punk power chords singing chord tones and often the root note. And again, when it goes to the chorus, Daniel is singing a B when he's playing the B power chord and then the A when he's playing the A power chord. This gives the song a directness and a conciseness, a compression of tone that really works with the up tempo and barreling through nature of the song.
3: and doing a vocal to something like that too like you know it's usually the only way that I could conceptualise singing over a song like that is to kind of you know draw influence from punk bands from the 70s because it's it's that kind of tempo where the only real other reference point is dance music Um, but yeah just because it was already written as, as a a chord progression the melody was already there so it f- forced me to try and rework that melody um, and sing it over that fast tempo and it's, I, I find that's probably the most pop vocal on the record, it just sounds really polite and um, tempered but still a bit like someone's being forced to be polite like you've got something on their neck and you're going to press it <laughs> so it's more like nervous politeness which we we all know what that feels like
2: (laughs) thinking in reverse is also the fastest song on the album and i am fascinated by this idea that it was the meeting of dance music and punk as daniel implies in that interview clip this means that the song is sort of the exact meeting point of paul's background and daniel's background thinking in reverse also apparently features backing vocals by natalie imbruglia I think she might be on one of the lower descending harmonies on the chorus, but that part of the song is so layered it's really hard to tell. What's interesting is she's not credited in the CD liner notes. Can you hear her in there? The bridge part in this song at the and I've got it all right part has Daniel doing this bizarre thing with his voice that maybe due to the song having a punk influence actually sounds like he might be imitating Jello Biafra from Dead Kennedys. This bridge part leads into the outro, which sounds like it's a runaway train, even though it's not actually speeding up in tempo before coming to a dead stop, if not completely crashing. It's pure energy. Lyrically, I'm not entirely sure what this song is about, but it has some great evocative lines. You've got the answer, but it lasts as long as you can smile and pretty soon your cheeks will hurt. That's great. And we've been numb like corridors and dry like tumbleweed. This hospital's my favorite church. And what could the term thinking in reverse mean anyway? Is it like the idea of putting the cart before the horse, thinking about things in the wrong sequence? The song doesn't provide many answers, but I love the images that it evokes. The instruments listed for this song are vocals, guitar, bass, piano, keyboards, programming, drums, and bleep lab.
4: We have this sort of traditional afternoon, you know, sunset going down. Okay, it's time to loosen up a bit. So we sort of sit down the backyard by the river and the swans would come in and the sun would set and it was kind of beautiful and stuff and that one I just had this sort of three part melody thing going on in my head, one of which was that flute thing, and another one was like a bass rhythm, And but I had no idea where it was going to go, it was just these three kind of Melody things bouncing around in my head. didn't even know what the notes were. I could just like had the rhythm of them. And I, I kind of I felt it was right and it was going to go somewhere, but it was like, Dan, can we go check out this idea? And So it went back inside and started just jamming it. And it was kind of like, it was really, really loose. It was kind of like one of those ones, oh, it might work, who knows? But then it, it just sort of over the period of recording, actually added some more layers, did some more dubbing stuff, added real drums. Played with the arrangement, and it was—it turned into you know some of our favourite. Yeah, like most
3: know. most but the people that heard like the band, that was in their top tracks.
2: Circa 2007-08 is another instrumental track. It's the closest thing to filler on an otherwise tight album. Of course, that's me saying that, someone with no interest in dance music, so I'm sure other people have different opinions. I was actually going to say it's a quick little song and it goes by without offending you, but this little song is actually longer than Thinking in Reverse and Sleep Well Tonight. It does, however, feel like a bonus track or a B-side. With that in mind, it's funny to hear that before there were any vocals on the album, this was the instrumental track that Friends of Daniel and Paul said stood out most to them. It just goes to show how much Daniel's melody lines could make or break a song. title to this one is interesting as it sets the song to be what was three or four years into the future at the time. Too bad that Associatives didn't last until circa 2007 08. What's also interesting is that the liner notes list this song as having quote vocals recorded by Nat and it's not even clear whether it means vocals by Nat as in she's singing or vocals by someone else recorded by Nat but that doesn't matter because there aren't any vocals on this song are there? And why credit her on the song she's not on rather than thinking in reverse, which she apparently is on? Maybe it's a drug thing. Paris
4: circa 2007 slash 08 is, um, I suppose another piece of whimsy where, um, uh, title wise, but Mm. it was one of those, that one I, I was, it's so hard when you can't talk about drugs.
5: (laughs) (laughs)
2: The instruments listed for this song are guitar, bass, piano, keyboard, flute, various dub freakouts, programming, drums by Kim, vibraphone, drums by Angus, and ice bucket by Julian.
3: Yeah, Young Man, Old Man will be the second single. I don't really want to divulge what it's about. I don't really want to talk about what any of them are about because it just gets polluted. Over time. Like, you say it the first time and it sounds reasonable, even though 50% of it's totally made up. And then after a while, it's just like... You just wish you never opened your mouth,
4: you know? It's just... With that song in particular, I I really... I couldn't give a shit what the lyrics are about anyway. They sound fantastic. To me, it's like those verses. Like, I could not tell you what they're about, but... um, I just love the sound of those words and the combination of sound with melody, I think.
3: Yeah, And that's,
4: that's enough.
2: So, well, despite neither Daniel nor Paul caring about what this song is about, Young Man, Old Man, You Ain't Better Than The Rest, is about Daniel and Paul's special relationship. Paul is 14 years older than Daniel, so he's the old man, Daniel is the young man. In fact, when they played this live, Paul would introduce this song as being about their relationship. That doesn't mean the lyrics are actually any clearer than the ones on the rest of the album, of course. This song sums up
4: our relationship really well.
2: Whose relationship?
3: Ours. Mine and yours? Yeah. Uh, Who's who? Uh, It's all avuncular. It's cool. It's all avuncular. All right, thanks. And seriously, and really seriously, thanks for coming to watch us play.
2: (laughs) It is interesting what Paul says about the way the words sound rather than what the words mean. This reminds me of whenever Mike Patton from Faith No More, Mr. Bungle, etc. was asked about lyrics, he would always imply that he likes the sounds of certain words, divorced from what they actually mean in a lyrical sense. So in this song, we get lines like, My faith is hungry, like whale frozen toes, steel cap fingers, and nobody knows. Because it sounds interesting, whether it means something or not.
5: My faith is hungry
2: Before I move on to the music itself, what stands out in this song lyrically is that every couplet rhymes. Usually in Daniel's lyrics, he minimized rhymes, which I spoke about a lot on the Diorama episodes. Young Man, Old Man, by contrast, has essentially only rhyming lines in the verses. Musically, there is a great stark contrast between the verses and the choruses, essentially a key change each time. I'm not sure if it's actually a key change, but it works like one. It helps propel each section and then makes the other part stand out in comparison. It shouldn't work, but it does, switching back and forth all the time. Again, Daniel's melodic sensibility carries the listener through. This song is one where Daniel, perhaps because of playing in standard tuning on a Telecaster, perhaps because of how quickly the songs were written, chooses very basic chord voicings, the so-called cowboy chords. But the sound of a nice open chord on a Telecaster is so great, it also just works. That's the thing with this album. For whatever reason, it just damn works. Plus, the chord progressions, especially in the verses, but also all the way through the song, are really cool. Listen. The verse chord progressions feature these awesome dominant 7th chords that have such a distinctive sound. I think Daniel liked this chord progression too, because when the dissociatives would play this song live, they would add in an instrumental vamp of the verse before Daniel started singing. The chorus is based around a Bsus2 chord that is exactly the right choice. Now, I have to assume it was Daniel that came up with the chord progression for this song, but if it was Paul, my apologies. But by now, Daniel was just able to pull out these significant melodies out of his chords, and it's just beautiful to hear it come together. And it's something I hear in the dissociatives, even more than Silverchair, maybe because of how quickly it was written. It seems to me to provide a more raw look at the songwriting process before it gets built on and a little bit more obscure. When we get to the bridge of the song, it again features the children's choir, which Daniel obviously hadn't gotten out of his system since Anthem for the year 2000. This time it does make a bit of sense considering the whole young old thing. And again, it just works. A pop mini masterpiece. The instruments listed for this song are vocals, guitars, bass, beatbox by Daniel, piano, mellotron, keyboards, and approving yeah by Paul, Drums, percussion, Kim and Angus, and the choir.
4: I think
3: Angry Megaphone Man needed to go at the end purely because it's like one of the best outros of all time. <laughs> No, not of all time, but it's the best outro we wrote at that particular phase in our careers. Like, we were really. Uh, when we came up with that outro and recorded it, finished it, and mixed it, and had some friends over to have a listen in the studio, we were just like. Because recording it ourselves, too, there's also that extra investment that you've put into it. It's not like. Because every single thing on that record, you you literally know it like it's your child. You know, something that sounds, we hear it and we know what that kick drum sounds like when there's nothing else behind it and we know what that sounded like before we put the delay and the noise crusher on it and, you know. So you feel there's that extra element of pride too because you know that everything on there is just from us and that's it, you know. So it feels more sacred. There's nothing on that record that is not by us for... So, uh...
2: I really like how Angry Megaphone Man builds out from the little rhythmic loop at the start. Then the guitar arpeggiated figure comes in, and on top of that, Paul's adding in these little bleepy bloops that sound like the sound effects from the old PC game Lemmings. Then the song shrinks back down for the verse, where Daniel's melody is quite simple, and his delivery is very subdued compared to some of the other performances on the album. A During the verse, there are some really cool little rhythmic things happening, both with live drums, credited to both Kim and Angus, and with electronic loops. Then we explode back out for the chorus and the live drums really come to the forefront. The way that associatives actually use the different sonic qualities of live drums and electronic drums is very smart. The way Daniel's vocals are treated in the chorus with a sharp echo reminds me of how John Lennon would produce his voice in the early 70s, with that super springy reverb. You can also really hear Paul's Mellotron underneath this chorus too, giving it that otherworldly feel. He's playing a really nice descending arpeggio too. It gives me Beatles vibes, despite the song not really sounding Beatles-y the way some of the other songs on the album do, such as lifting the veil from the braille. really like this little lick after the first chorus coming back into the verse. I think of it as almost a little Iron Maiden lick, though the notes are actually the same as the melody during the chorus when Daniel sings tidily." <laughs> that little lick is something that shows to me that these guys were working in tandem. That's the sort of little flourish you only get from bandmates. As you heard in that clip, these guys were really proud of the outro to the song, which features, again, I think the Mellotron going in and out of tune, something that I think happens naturally if you play any note on a Mellotron for too long because of the physical tape wearing out. The outro premix is credited to Anton Hagop, one of the engineers who worked on Diorama, in fact. The way the song ends abruptly is really great, and it provides the perfect introduction to the final song on the album. In the lyrics to Angry Megaphone Man, we get another reference to a whale and the sea. I wonder if being on the water during this album had something to do with that. Not that a river is quite the same as the sea, of course. The lyrics in the chorus are... Once upon a time, we'd never been cold, and tidily, the message had been sent, the fury would start, and finally, the whale, it would rain like a king on a storm cloud. This is another song that lyrically seems whimsical without being about anything in particular, and I have no idea what the title means with its three A's in the word angry and the reference to a megaphone, since the metaphors in the lyrics are about the sea, but it's a really strong song that I've always really admired. The instruments listed on this song are vocals, guitar, bass, mellotron, dub freakout, keyboards, programming, drums by Kim and Angus, orchestral percussion by Kim, and outro premix by Anton.
4: like we needed to tie it up it had, it, it, and it was kind of like um, like some of the songs like Dan was saying before had a kind of natural relationship to each other like you know horror with eyeballs wanted to go into lifting the veil you know young man old man flowed really nicely into angry megaphone man at the end it felt it was just a nice way to kind of say good night and sign off it felt like it needed one of them at the end of this sort of journey um, so I I think I wrote the piano bit, and then Dan wrote this beautiful lullaby on top of it. I just came
3: down and I'm like, what's this? And he's like, oh, maybe we can use it for a last track or something. I was like, fucking cool, it sounds so good. And I was just laying on the lounge, and Paul just pressed record on the laptop and started recording, and I was just like laying on the floor, just feeling it vibrate. Just laying there, and the, at the end of the tape got up. That was beautiful, man. (laughs) Bristol. (laughs) Yeah, just did the vocal and that was the song.
2: I love this song. Simple as that. I love how the piano chords move, adding and subtracting grace notes. When Daniel talks about Paul being his musical soulmate, it's stuff like this that I think of. That one of them wrote a chord progression that so clearly went with a melody that the other one wrote.
5: Some foolish man
2: Everything in this song is really subtle, but very effective, like the chord changes. I had a theory that maybe this was written on guitar rather than piano because of the way the chords move around on guitar. It's often playing a full bar chord and then releasing the barred finger and playing the open strings. So for example, the verses go like this, which on guitar is four chords, but in two positions. So first, it's an A major chord, then you release the barring finger to make it like an A9 or something. And then you move to the F major position, but without the barred finger. So you get like an F add flat five, and then you put that finger back and you're playing the F major. But as Paul said in that clip, he wrote the piano part, which makes sense because of how much the chords do move around. It's just something beautiful that happens when you transpose it to another instrument.
5: So the
2: it's a much more subtle take on a piano ballad than something like After All These Years, and I do wonder with the title Sleep Well Tonight, whether it was influenced even subconsciously by the last song on the Beatles' white album, Good Night. But it's brilliant and simple, a beautiful, understated end to the album. Lyrically, Sleep Well Tonight is another of Daniel's rare, straightforward lyrics, perhaps again because of the compressed amount of time these songs were written in. Some foolish man dreamt that dreaming had no meaning, and life is quite simply a series of illusions. It also has what I think is one of Daniel's best lyrics ever. Light is quite simply, life is quite simply, a series of intrusions. In the CD booklet, it actually has those lines reversed. So it says, life then light. But when you listen to it, you can hear what he's saying pretty clearly. It's also just a more effective lyric that way. Life is a series of intrusions. What a bittersweet and beautiful note to end on. Anyway, for me, it rivals the final line of After All These Years. A perfect ending to a perfect little experiment. The instruments on this song vocals, piano, atmospherics.
1: Yeah, am I'm I'm really happy with the dissociatives record. More in a lot of ways more than more than any other record. Darwin was another record for me that I was really happy with, but the Dissociatives I'm happy with because it's 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 probably the purest music that I've ever come up with and because it was co written with Paul, the the idea of collaborating was was kind of an idea that wasn't appealing to me until I realised the, the close musical connection I had with Paul. So we we started writing this album. It's really there's something about two people with with equal passion for something that really makes something magic happen. You can't you can't do what we did for this record on your own. I think Diorama, because I did it on my own, really made me curious and open to co-writing. But I just had to find someone that I really respect as I
2: admire. The Dissociatives came out April 5th, 2004 in Australia. The album debuted at number 12 on the ARIA chart, eventually selling 60,000 copies in Australia. The singles released from the album were Somewhere Down the Barrel, Young Man, Old Man, and Horror With Eyeballs. Somewhere Down the Barrel hit number 25 on the ARIA chart. Young Man, Old Man only got to 46 on the chart, was nominated for song of the year at the apra awards which award songwriters and publishers the song that beat it scar by missy higgins whose first album was also on 11 john watson's record label that the dissociatives was on when it came to reviews it was somewhat the story of daniel's career local critics were positive international critics mixed australian rolling stone was effusive on the album saying it was music unlike anything produced by an australian act A pop rock record for the ages to be placed alongside your Beatles and Beach Boys. A review from DrownedInSound.com said, Crafting 10 songs that often appear to blend seamlessly into the next track, only discernible by a different killer chorus or maybe a new trick sewn into the hem and tucked underneath what you might hear on first listen. Understand that there is no filler. The Sydney Morning Herald gave the album three and a half stars and said, It's clear that Associatives is a pop album built on melodies. More importantly, it builds on where Johns has been headed since he discovered Brian Wilson and his occasional collaborator, the often inspired, if mad, Van Dyke Parks. But of course, outlets such as Pitchfork had to come along and ruin things with a dreadful review, saying that left field techno vet Paul Mack seems stale working away from a club oriented context, but it's Johns who seems out of his depth. Maybe he can write a three-chord rock song, but here he undersings, over-emotes, and writes melodies that spiral off in insane directions before ending up nowhere, all while multi-tracking his vocals to cover his failings. Yikes. The Pitchfork reviewer's name, Jason Croc, sounds about right. In an again infuriating misunderstanding of the context these artists were coming from, Croc claims that we're much preferred customers is a rip-off of Radiohead's Everything in its Right Place, as if Paul Mack hadn't been making electronic music before Radiohead even picked up a keyboard, and Daniel hadn't been writing piano ballads long before Kid A was even released. I've said it before and I'll say it again, music critics can only draw on what they know, but when they know nothing, they will just make it up. In his retrospective look at Daniel's career for NME, past guest Richard S. He says of the Dissociatives album Electronic pop records really don't sound like this anymore. 70s and 80s nostalgia soon came back in vogue and never went away. The Dissociatives, instead, sounds like the 60s and the 90s, the Beatles via William Orbit, but so full of childlike wonder that they're almost willfully uncool. Daniel was relieved that his new music was being positively received. Jeff Apter quotes Daniel as saying, It's probably the purest music I've ever come up with. The idea of collaborating wasn't appealing to me until I realized the close musical connection I had with Paul. There is something about two people with equal passion for something that really makes magic happen. Ouch, take that, Chris and Ben. In that same interview, Daniel goes on to say, It was good for everyone involved with me, that record. It made me so much happier to know that people would still accept my music if I wasn't slitting my wrists. There were video clips made for all three of the singles from this album, and they were all animated in the style of the cover art by award-winning animator James Hackett. For the videos and the album art, Daniel and Paul spent a few days in a studio having photos taken from all possible angles and in all possible positions, and then Hackett, who had worked on U2's Pop Mart tour, among other things, would turn these photos into animation. The band need never show up for press at all. I think with the videos, um, um... We wanted them to reflect um,
4: the same spirit of the music, um, to get the sense of fun, the sense of color, the sense of, um, you know, just fun and fresh, which is, I think, what we're just trying to say about the music, and when we found James, it was like, that's what he does. He's He's just a really funny guy, really good ideas, and it kind of, creating a new world that is ours rather than, you know, that doesn't look like Silverchair. it doesn't look like, you know, my thing. So it's just, it's, it's its own thing, a kind of fresh start.
2: However, this meant that the band drew inaccurate comparisons to an artist like Gorillaz, and I think this imagery is maybe what put people off checking out the music and taking it seriously if you weren't already predisposed to it. If the band were going to be cartoons, then people would write off the music as being a cartoon. The imagery did give the band a distinct identity from either Paul Mac, Solo, or Silverchair, but it was still very cartoony in a way the music was not. Looking at it today, I don't know if it's dated or just a bit weird. My belief has always been that, apart from anything else, the videos and CD cover were, for some fans, a bridge too far to cross. It's like, for example, how I hate those Funko Pop toys. I don't understand why people like or collect them or would want something that takes the basic idea of a character and then makes them look nothing like the original design. It flattens everything out and makes, you know, Freddy Krueger look essentially the same as Bono from U2. I don't get it. And some people just didn't get the dissociatives either.
4: We tried to see if we could make it work, um, like just doing it all live without any, you know, production tricks or sequencing or you know like backing tracks and stuff because it's kind of complex to try and pull off but we've found a nice band of musicians of friends and like-minded people and tried rehearsing it at the end of last year and it sounds great like just as a band so yeah we're going to take it out.
3: We're going to strip it back, go back to our roots Yeah. rediscover what it really means to be in a band.
4: Yeah, keeping it real. (laughs) Yeah. People, surreal
2: for the kids. <laughs> the Dissociatives toured Australia in June and July 2004, supported by Little Birdie and the Presets, who also doubled as the Dissociatives' backing band. There were only 15 dates in the space of about a month or so. Then again, the Dissociatives weren't silverchair. They couldn't necessarily book out all that many shows. And that seemed to suit the guys just fine. The lower stakes nature of the Dissociatives appealed to them, Daniel especially. However, apparently the tour was going so well that some regional shows were added at the last minute. In fact, the show I ended up seeing them at was in Warrnambool, a regional centre in Western Victoria, after I couldn't make the Melbourne show. The band had one date free between their Melbourne and Adelaide shows, and Warrnambool is basically the halfway point. So, lucky me. For the most part, the Dissociatives Live played the album plus some covers, mainly Tom Waits' Going Out West, which Daniel seemed to love blowing his voice out on every single night. Now I wonder whether some people going to see that Associatives were expecting a silver chair song in there. I definitely wasn't and wouldn't have considered that a possibility, but looking back, I can imagine there were some fans who might not have understood that this was a different project and that there would be no cross-pollination. Speaking of blowing his voice out, the band had to cancel a show in Sawtell, New South Wales, because Daniel had no voice left. The next night in Brisbane, they went ahead, but they also considered cancelling. After seeing a doctor, Daniel did end up cancelling a few more of the shows on the tour. To blow your voice out only one month on the road is something. That had never happened on a Silverchair tour. There are a couple of things that contribute to a singer losing their voice, but considering how much touring Daniel had done with Silverchair, you'd think maybe a 15-date mini-tour through Australia wouldn't have been too much physically to cope with. Of course, he had just recovered from reactive arthritis and he probably wasn't in the healthiest state to begin with, but it is something of note. Jeff Apter quotes Daniel as saying, "'During the dissociative period, I was excessive. "'I remember all of it and fondly, "'but I was trying to break something in my brain with pot, "'and I think I did.'" According to Kim Moynes, the dissociative drummer, Daniel smoked, quote, "'harder than Snoop Dogg.'" After the stress of being in Silverchair, his entire adult and adolescent life, smoking some weed to relax and relieve some of that anxiety was probably not a bad thing for his mental health, but it likely didn't help his vocal cords, Nor did covering a Tom Waits song, where Daniel would indulge in imitating Tom Waits' Rolf the Dog-like growl. In addition, Daniel's approach to singing on the Dissociatives album is a lot of falsetto. The first thing to go when you're in need of vocal rest is your falsetto. Smoking and doing Tom Waits covers every night would not have helped that. This is why, in my opinion, he sometimes had iffy vocal performances live, his increasing embrace and reliance on falsetto singing and smoking, frankly. The final show of the Dissociatives tour was the 2004 Splendor in the Grass in Byron Bay. For a band that didn't have much time to gel, the Dissociatives Live were really dynamic. The fact that the music was so different to Silverchair and also quite a bit simpler meant that Daniel in particular was able to be playful on stage in a way he hadn't necessarily been in the past. Also the fact that there wasn't the pressure of being the Silverchair guy was probably part of it too. And, as strange as it might sound, Daniel, Paul, Julian, Kim, and James really gelled as a unit. They sounded like a real band live. They jammed and improvised a bit. They were having fun. Daniel even said at the time that he was looking forward to touring, which wasn't something he had ever felt about Silverchair. There was just too much baggage that came with anything to do with Silverchair at this point in time. Speaking of being playful, The Dissociatives did do quite a few media appearances in promotion of the album, even a brief foray overseas to talk up the first single, Somewhere Down the Barrel. We were friends before we really ever
3: decided to do The Dissociatives, so The Dissociatives is in a lot of ways an extension of our friendship and um, all that other nice stuff.
0: (laughs) 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 (laughs)
2: In 2005, The Dissociatives did do a brief UK and European tour, playing England, Germany, the Netherlands, and France. But by July 2005, The Dissociatives were effectively done as a band. There aren't a ton of media appearances for The Dissociatives online, but the ones that still survive showed Daniel in a much more relaxed state than he had ever been when promoting a silver chair release. Some of that is just Daniel being a bit older. Some of it is having a partner in crime like Paul Mack with him, and some of it is just the freedom of the dissociatives not being Silverchair.
0: So what does this mean? I mean, you know, groups like uh, you know Destiny's Child they break up and not break up, but they take time apart to do their own thing. And the idea of a group like them getting back together seems like it's not going to happen. Well, it's now. funny you
3: should say that because we often reference ourselves to Destiny's Child. <laughs> <laughs> I consider myself more the, the uh,
0: Beyonce, Yeah. <laughs> he's more the Kelly. <laughs> but is this, does this mean uh, we won't see Silverchair doing an album? Will Paul Mack? I'm splitting will you, will, are Paul Mack you <laughs> You'll never work with Paul or Mack nah, again? Nah. Will yeah. you do another solo album? Will Silverchair do another album together? We're all, we've just got like a folder with,
3: that's entitled options. Within that title that's entitled options are many options.
0: <laughs> 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 he is a man of mystery! <laughs> but what i mean with you and the boys, are you just taking a break and you'll get back together at some point? Yeah, no, we're me? just,
3: we're taking a break and we're all still friends and I still love them and they still love me. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's all good. Excellent! It's all good, we're ready to, to be friends as soon as I get back, we're going to be best mates.
2: <laughs> Daniel is especially silly, giddy and whimsical in these interviews and live appearances. It's actually an interesting parallel to the music. Where Silverchair's music was anxious and dark, Daniel's demeanor in interviews mirrored that. By the dissociatives, he was giggling and having fun, just like the album. It might also be that with Silverchair, Daniel had always been sure of what he was doing. He had a specific vision, especially for the previous two Silverchair albums, and he really worked until it sounded like what was in his head. With the dissociatives, there weren't really any preconceived notions, and so he doesn't come across in those interviews as being particularly sure that this is where he wants to take his music, just that it's a fun detour, even though at the time they swore up and down they wanted this project to be a real band. Well, it's been 16 years, and we still haven't had a second album. So much for it being a real band.
0: Because this isn't a side project, is it, Daniel? It's it's, it's a real thing. No, it's for real, definitely. We're really passionate about it,
3: and... Love the music and love the um, intention behind it all. So it's not a side project. It's just another another jelly bean in the bowl. <laughs>
2: <laughs> for some, the lasting legacy of the Dissociatives is the theme song they produced for the ABC music quiz show Spicks and Specks, a cover of the Bee Gees song Spicks and Specks. And if you think the arrangement of that theme song sounds a little familiar, it's probably because that single piano note intro bears more than a little resemblance to the young modern song, If You Keep Losing Sleep. And wouldn't you know it, that song originated as a dissociative song, one they played live during their short tour, such as in this recording. I think if I might give my opinion on something I have no actual idea about, the reason we didn't see another Dissociative's album is probably the same reason we are unlikely to see a silver chair reunion. Daniel is not interested in looking back, only looking forward. He is the one way mule.
0: Well, in the end, the first (laughs) audience for any art is yourself.
2: Yeah, I
3: think actually I'd, I'd do it for myself. And as soon as I feel like I've done something artistically, I very rarely want to repeat it or feel a a, a craving or desire to do anything similar or do a better version or a different version of
2: it. So every album that I do is starting again. Also, and not to take anything away from them, obviously, but Silverchair's success came so quickly and in a way so easily that starting again from scratch takes way more time and attention than maybe Daniel is interested in anymore. Silverchair's work ethic their whole career, I think, was informed by how they toured when they were just starting out and still in high school. That is, toured for a few weeks at a time, then came back home to do a term of school. And remember, this is when they were at their most successful overseas, Frogstomp and Freakshow. So they were, to some extent, conditioned by that in perhaps a misguided attempt to keep them grounded or with something to fall back on. So they were in this stop-start process of recording, short burst of touring, then back home, having a holiday. And to me, that's what I see with Daniel's later projects, including The Dissociatives, but also his solo work and Dreams, where by this point, he and his collaborators were already very successful in their own rights. And I don't know how to put this without sounding critical or mean, but they just didn't work at establishing an audience the way it's required, especially these days. So like particularly with Dreams, they only did one or two shows ever, Daniel did a couple of interviews and got a neck tattoo, I'm not sure if Luke Steele did any press for it, but they didn't really give the album the push it would need to succeed in the current music and media landscape. And that's leaving out any opinion about the quality of the album itself. But by 2017, people in the industry should know you can't just show up for a few media appearances and expect to do well. I can't help but feel with dreams that maybe they were just not willing to play the game as it has to be played these days with social media, fan engagement on a direct level and opening up your life to a certain extent. And I completely understand that. Daniel has talked about not only his anxiety but his stage fright and that's probably the reason we haven't seen him on stage as much as we would probably have liked in the last decade or so. And remember, these guys were rock stars in the 90s where you could just go away for a couple of years and emerge with a new studio album, do a short promo tour, and maybe sell a million albums. Okay, that's oversimplifying it, but ironically nowadays, you make less money from your music directly, but the potential is maybe greater if you're willing to basically start over again with social media and marketing. But again, Daniel has never been interested in that, which is why we have no legacy social media presence for Silverchair. I'll be talking more about that in future episodes, though, I'm sure. As for the Dissociatives album, I love it. My dirty little secret was that I thought this album is overall the strongest album that Daniel ever worked on. It's the most consistent, cohesive, and whole as an album. At least that's been my contention for many years. My recent re-listens to this and Diorama, however, might have switched those opinions, but not by much. This is an all-timer for me. Daniel said at the time that The Dissociatives represented his best work yet, and I tended to agree. The Dissociatives said that they were more than just a side project, they're a real band, but a second album never emerged, for whatever reason. Knowing that it was recorded in a fever dream of two weeks, looking back, you can see how the steam might have run out by the time the realities of being a real band emerged. I touched on this in my interview with Richard S. He, but Daniel did have something of a charmed life when it came to working on his music. He never did the struggle of playing the shitty clubs and working his way up bit by bit. And obviously, I'm not saying he didn't deserve all the praise he got with Silverchair. I make this podcast, duh. But thinking about how few or actually none of the projects he's done have stuck around for longer than one album makes me think he gets bored easily. And he said as much in interviews. But I think that's what makes The Associative's album so cohesive and special for me. It sounds of a piece because it was done so quickly. And that's probably why that was the only album we got. It belongs to a time and place in Daniel and Paul's lives that's over, which is how I think Daniel probably feels about Silverchair now too. You also probably can't discount that this album is very much tied up with Daniel's relationship with his now ex-wife. I would have loved another Dissociative's album, but I'm thankful for what we got. As always, it was too much of not enough. As for Silverchair, who knows what Ben and Chris were thinking during 2004 as they saw their front man having a ball with his new collaborator and seeming more happy than he'd ever been. I'm sure they didn't begrudge Daniel any of this, of course, but they might have wondered, as many did at the time, could Silverchair finally be done for good? That seemed to be a recurrent theme when it came to the band. Finish a tour, retreat back home with no plans on the calendar, and not even sure whether there would be a band to come back to. What did bring them back was a tragic event at the tail end of 2004 that would set in motion a series of events that would reinvigorate the band's love and joy of playing together. But that's for another episode of Too Much of Not Enough, a Silver Chair podcast. This podcast is written, produced, and performed by me, Daniel Hedger. All Dissociative's music is owned by 11 music publishers. All Silverchair music is owned by Murmur and 11. For this episode, I should note that I couldn't find official dissociative sheet music anywhere, which I guess makes sense because they were so short-lived, but that means that there are more guesses at the musical analysis than on the Silverchair albums, because I'm relying on internet tab and chord websites and on my ears, all of which are notoriously unreliable. I'm sure, as always, that I've made some errors. I've had at least one person correct me about something on the diorama episode, but I don't mind that. It means people are really engaging with the show. For this episode, I have to give special thanks to Renee and Bo Davis, who actually had the Dissociatives interview CD that came with their press kit back in the day and let me use the audio. That was invaluable for this episode. Also, and I don't mention this in every episode, but a lot of the biographical material for this podcast has come from Jeff Apter's Two Silverchair Books, A New Tomorrow, and The Book of Daniel. Surprisingly, for this episode in particular, the dissociative still active website was actually pretty helpful as well. And as always, I believe I'm using all these resources as well as the music in compliance with copyright.com.au slash about copyright slash exceptions. Thanks again for listening. Catch you next time.